Welcome back to The Emily Show. This week, we are taking a look at an older case that is back in the news because of new motions, and that is the state versus Scott Peterson, who was convicted for killing his wife, Lacey, and unborn son, Connor. It's back in the news because the LA Innocence Project just recently filed some substantial motions, not just for DNA testing, but also asking for new evidence that they claim Scott Peterson did not have during trial, amongst other things. So if you remember this case being in the news back in 2002, or if you remember this case from when it was resentenced in 2021, or if you're new to the case, I've got something for you today. We're going to do a quick overview of this case because we're going to look at the Supreme Court ruling denying a new motion but overturning the death penalty. And then we're going to take a look at the motion filed just this month by the Innocence Project in Los Angeles. So with all of that, we're diving into a bit of a historical case. A lot of you have asked about this one, and I hope this fills in those questions. That's what we're here for. So let's get into it. Welcome to The Emily Show. I'm Emily D. Baker, the internet's go-to legal analyst and big fan of the cursey words. I've been a licensed attorney for over 17 years. I'm a former prosecutor, and I break down the legal side of pop culture and entertainment stories we can't stop talking about. We should just get into it. Let's go. It's that time of year where we have to tackle the adulty tasks that we don't always love, and I am the first one to procrastinate forever. But our sponsor today, Policy Genius, makes it easy to jump right in and find life insurance that fits your needs. Policy Genius has licensed, award-winning agents who can help you find the best fit for your needs. Remember, they work for you and not the insurance company. It means they don't have any incentive to recommend one plan or one insurer over the other. They are there to help you find the right fit. Policy Genius was created to take the stress out of shopping for life insurance. They make it easy to shop from all of America's top life insurance providers in just a few clicks. And with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. It doesn't get any easier to shop for life insurance than Policy Genius. Save time and money and give your family a financial safety net with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. Let's get back to today's episode. As I said, today we're going to do a timeline overview, then we're going to look at some of the facts as the Supreme Court of California found them to be, and then we're going to go to this motion from the Innocence Project. I'm hoping that using the Supreme Court's motion from 2020 will help you get a lay of the land procedurally, and then will also give us some of a factual background for those of you that may remember this case vaguely or may remember this case intimately. But what I ask this case was one of those hyper high profile cases where, you know, you had news personalities reporting from outside the courtroom. You had jurors giving interviews after the trial. You had motions about juror misconduct after the trial. So many things that parallel what we're seeing in high profile cases today back from 2004 and some of the same problems that we're going to be talking about all week in the Murdoch case, because Murdoch is going to an evidentiary hearing with regard to whether or not there was 
jury tampering. And we've seen arguments about jurors in the taking care of Maya case. We saw them, of course, in the Glenn Maxwell case. I covered that here. We get a lot of conversations about jurors in these high-profile cases. In this case, had those conversations too. Last week, when I covered the University of Idaho killings and the recent Brian Koberger hearing, the defense attorney made an offhanded comment that the appeal on the case after it being a death penalty case would be going on for 28 plus years. And here we are looking at the Scott Peterson case 20 years after he was convicted and the appeals are still ongoing. And some in the chat then were like, wait, really? These appeals could be going on for 20 plus years? And I thought that this case was not just interesting from a legal standpoint, but from the high-profile case standpoint that so many of you might remember it, and from the fact that these appeals have been going on for over 20 years, his death sentence was overturned, and there's quite a lot to talk about. So for all the, the comparisons that can be pulled from this case to cases we're covering now, we're going to take a look back into 2002. And that's where this all starts. On Christmas Eve 2002, Lacey Peterson goes missing at eight months pregnant. In April 2003, Lacey Peterson's body is recovered. The next day, the unborn son is recovered. On April 18th, Lacey's DNA is matched. On April 18th, Scott Peterson is arrested for the murder of Lacey Peterson and Connor Peterson. On June 1st, 2004, the trial begins. It is a trial that lasts six months in total, five months for the guilt phase, one month for the penalty phase. The jury comes back with a conviction and in November 2004 recommends the death penalty. And in November 2004, convicted Scott Peterson. In December 2004, the jury recommended the death penalty. He was then sentenced. An appeal automatically followed in both 2012 and 2015. The 2015 appeal worked its way up to the California Supreme Court, and that was ruled on in 2020. That overturned the death penalty conviction and upheld everything else. We're going to look at that today. In December of 2021, Scott Peterson was resentenced without trial to life without the possibility of parole. The prosecution could have retried the death penalty phase. They could have just done a punishment phase trial and chose not to, instead allowing and stipulating that he could just be resentenced on LWAP. Because Scott Peterson was moved off of death row, he lost his death row appellate counsel and filed a motion for new trial on his own, which was denied. But then he has a, another habeas petition that has been taken up by the LA Innocence Project, and they filed their motion for post-judgment discovery January 17th, 2024, almost 20 years after Scott Peterson was convicted and sentenced. These cases not just take a long time to get to trial, but they are never done when the jury verdict comes in. They take decades in appellate courts afterwards. And this is a case that many had questions about. I ask, um, if I haven't already, <laughs> to keep an open mind about this case and what you might know about it, because we're going to be diving into the process and whether or not the process was done properly here, whatever your feelings about Scott Peterson's guilt or innocence may be. 
And with that, let's take a look at the California Supreme Court ruling in Scott Peterson's 2015 appeal. For those of you listening on audio, I will do my best to just narrate, but this is the People versus Scott Peterson, and then it has all of the appellate numbers. And the Supreme Court does a fantastic job of giving us a procedural and factual background of this case, which we are going to go through because A, they did it so well. And for those of you not familiar with the case, this will give a broad overview of what was presented at trial, what the jury found to be factually true, and we will go from there. A jury convicted defendant Scott Lee Peterson of one count of first-degree murder for the killing of his wife, Lacey Peterson, and one count of second-degree murder for the killing of their unborn son. It was found true, the special circumstance that Peterson had committed multiple murders. And just a note for me, that special circumstance is what made him eligible for the death penalty, the fact that the special circumstance of multiple murders was met. At the penalty phase, the jury returned a verdict of death. This appeal is automatic. Yes. It goes on to say Peterson contends his trial was flawed for multiple reasons, beginning with the unusual amount of pretrial publicity that surrounded the case. We reject Peterson's claim that he received an unfair trial as to guilt and thus affirm his convictions for murder. This is where Peterson argued about the jurors, about evidence the prosecution didn't turn over, or argued that his trial was unfair. The Supreme Court denies that argument and affirms the conviction, which means they uphold the conviction as to guilt. They go on to say, but before the trial began, the trial court made a series of clear and significant errors in jury selection that under longstanding United States Supreme Court precedent undermined Peterson's right to an impartial jury at the penalty phase. And the penalty phase is where the jury decides whether it will be life without parole or death. It goes on to say, while a court may dismiss a prospective juror as unqualified to sit on a capital case, if the juror's views on capital punishment would substantially impair his or her ability to follow the law, a juror may not be dismissed merely because he or she has expressed opposition to the death penalty as a general matter. And this is really the heart of the Supreme Court's decision that jurors are allowed to say and can be fundamentally opposed to the death penalty, saying, I don't agree with the death penalty, but I will follow the law in this case. That's where the Supreme Court finds that the judge pulled out of the jury pool anyone on the questionnaire that didn't agree with the death penalty. I think that the judge's thought process there was probably, well, if you fundamentally disagree with the death penalty, how can you be fair and follow the law? Because how would you ever send somebody to death? But the Supreme Court walks through the law of the land and those questions needed to be asked. You can't just remove jurors based on their answers on these questionnaires. It goes on to say here, the trial court erroneously dismissed many prospective jurors because of written questionnaire responses expressing opposition to the death penalty, even though the jurors gave no indication that their views would prevent them from following the law. And indeed, specifically attest in their questionnaire responses that they would have no such difficulty. Under United States Supreme Court precedent, these errors require us to reverse the death sentence in this case. On remand, the people may retry the penalty phase if they so choose. The people being the state, they had the option to retry the penalty phase and did not. That's going to come up in Peterson's affidavit in the Innocence Project motion, arguing 
Well, Emily, spoilers. It's going to come up in an affidavit from Scott Peterson that I'm going to cover when we get to the Innocence Project motion later in this episode. The court then lays out the factual and procedural background, so bear with me. Guilt phase of trial. One, prosecution evidence. This is the Supreme Court's recitation of what the prosecution presented at this trial. Peterson and Lacey Rocha met in San Luis Obispo, where Lacey was attending college and Peterson was working in a restaurant. They married in 1997. They opened and ran a restaurant together in Slow, in, sorry, non-Californians, San Luis Obispo, SLO. <laughs> Apology. Emily, sometimes it just slips right out. Yes, yes. In 2000, they moved to Modesto and bought a house. Lacey took a job as a substitute teacher. Peterson ran a startup fertilizer company named Trade Corp USA out of a leased warehouse. Some years after the two married, Lacey became pregnant. The baby, whom the couple had named Connor, was due February 2023, footnote one. And then the court clarifies that they will be referring to Lacey Peterson and Connor by their first names and sometimes refer to members of Lacey's family, her mother, Sharon, her sister, Amy, and her brother, Brent, by their first name. It says no disrespect is intended to any of these individuals. The court acknowledges that for clarity, referring to people by their first name and not their full names is going to make it less confusing than referring to Lacey as Peterson, referring to Scott as Peterson, and referring to all three of the Rocha family members as Rocha. On December 23rd, 2002, Lacey went grocery shopping around midday. She also had a prenatal medical checkup. In the late afternoon, both Lacey and Peterson went to a salon where Lacey's sister, Amy, worked. Amy mentioned that she had ordered a gift basket for a family member that needed to be picked up the next day by 3 p.m., the next day being Christmas Eve. Peterson volunteered to get it for her as he was going to be golfing nearby. Peterson also invited Amy to dinner, but she declined because she had prior plans. That night, Lacey and her mother, Sharon, spoke on the phone and confirmed that Lacey and Scott would join Sharon and Sharon's longtime partner, Ron, for dinner the following night, Christmas Eve. At 10.18 the following morning, a neighbor, Karen, saw the Peterson's dog, Mackenzie, wandering unaccompanied on the street, wearing his leash. Peterson's truck was gone. Lacey's car was still in their driveway. There were no signs of activity at the house, so the neighbor put the dog in the Peterson's backyard and closed the gate. That afternoon, Gransky, who is the mother Sharon's partner, tried to reach Lacey without success. Around 3.45 p.m., Amy received a call that her gift basket had not yet been picked up, the gift basket that Scott City would pick up by 3 p.m., because Christmas Eve and things were probably closing. She was unable to reach Scott. Neighbors reported Scott's truck still absent at 4.05 p.m., but back by 5.30. At around 5.15 p.m., Peterson called Sharon and asked if Lacey was there. He described Lacey as quote-unquote missing. Sharon suggested he check with friends and neighbors. Peterson called Sharon back shortly afterwards and reported the people he had spoken to had not seen Lacey either. Sharon told her partner, Ron, to call the police. Officers soon met Peterson, Sharon, and Gransky at a nearby park. Neighbors and other relatives gathered at the park as well. Gransky spoke with Peterson and asked if he had gone golfing that day. Peterson said he had changed his mind and gone fishing instead. Told what time Peterson had gone, Gransky suggested it was unusually, it was an unusually late time to be fishing. Peterson walked off without responding. Peterson told a cousin of Sharon's and two neighbors that he had been golfing all day. They're pointing that out because there are conflicting statements about where he was during the time that Lacey went missing. He volunteered to Sandy Richard, a friend of Sharon's, that he would not be surprised if the police found blood in his truck because he cut his hands all the time. 
Police inspected the Peterson home. There were no signs of forced entry. Nothing appeared missing, and Lacey's purse was still there. Peterson told officers he and Lacey had watched television that morning, and Lacey had planned to walk the dog and go grocery shopping. Peterson decided to go fishing in the San Francisco Bay. Not particularly close to Modesto on Christmas Eve, he went to his company warehouse where he stored a boat, drove to the Berkeley Marina, fished for two hours, and quit because the day was cold and rainy. He tried calling Lacey on the home phone and her cell phone, but did not reach her. Peterson got home around 4.30, washed his clothes, ate some pizza, and then called Sharon to track down Lacey. Officer Matthew Spurlock asked what time Peterson was fishing. He also asked what Peterson was fishing for and what lure he used. According to Spurlock and Officer Derek Letzinger, Peterson gave slow and initially noncommittal answers. He, quote, really didn't give a responsive time, and when he was asked what he was fishing for, paused, gave a blank look, and mumbled some stuff without really answering. Peterson likewise responded with a blank look when asked about his lure, but after some delay, came up with a size and color description. Detective Alan Broschini was called to the Peterson home. He found wet towels on top of the washing machine. Peterson explained that he had taken them out so that he could wash the clothes he had worn that day. Okay. Inside the washing machine were Peterson's jeans, shirt, and green pullover jacket. In the bedroom, officers observed a laundry hamper nearly full of clothes. That observation is noted because I think many would be like, well, would you really take wet towels out to put in a load of clothes and not do a full load of laundry if you have a hamper full of laundry? Things that raise questions. With consent, Detective Broschini examined Peterson's truck and saw large patio umbrellas and a tarp in the back of the truck bed or in the truck bed. Inside the truck cab, he found a fishing rod and a bag containing a package of unused fishing lures and a receipt indicating the items had all been purchased on December 20th. So the fishing rod and the unused lures all purchased December 20th. Peterson handed him a Berkeley Marina parking receipt that indicated Peterson had entered at 12.54 p.m. On the back seat was a camouflage jacket Peterson said he had worn fishing that day. Broschini and Peterson then went to Peterson's warehouse. There, Broschini observed what he described as a quote-unquote homemade anchor made of concrete in Peterson's boat, but no long rope to attach it to the boat. Peterson agreed to a further interview at the Modesto police station. Peterson repeated that Lacey had planned to walk the dog and go grocery shopping. For his part, Peterson decided to go fishing because it was too cold to golf. He went to his warehouse, then to the Berkeley Marina around 1 p.m. and fished for 90 minutes near that area that was later identified as Brooks Island. Footnote two, time for the footnote voice. Peterson said he left the house with no jacket on, put on a green pullover jacket, and then put the camouflage jacket over that when it started raining. The camouflage jacket, when Detective Brocini saw it in Peterson's truck a few hours later, was dry. It goes on to say Peterson did not pack a lunch or stop to eat on the way to or from the marina. On the way back, Peterson called Lacey on their home phone and left two messages on her cell phone. Footnote three, when messages on Lacey's cell phone were played, only one voice message from Peterson was found. It goes on to say he dropped his boat off at the warehouse and went home. Peterson told officers that there were no problems in his marriage, which, if you remember this case, makes it all the more staggering when his affair comes up. Peterson had a follow-up interview with Detective Craig Grogan, an investigator from the state's Department of Justice on Christmas Day, December 25th. Peterson explained that he had never fished on the San Francisco Bay before, but wanted to test out his boat. 
He trollfished, footnote four, for an hour on the way out to Brooks Island from the marina dock, footnote four. Trollfishing involves dragging a baited line through the water. I'm going to read all of these footnotes. Emily, how many footnotes are you going to read? All of them. I'm going to read all of them. They're too good. Peterson suggested Lacey might have been robbed for her jewelry by a transient and then kidnapped. He denied being involved in an affair with anyone, because the police are going to ask. Later that day, Peterson called Detective Brocchini to check on the investigation. He asked if the police would be using cadaver dogs to search for Lacey. You don't use cadaver dogs when somebody's alive. Hold on, footnote five. Cadaver dogs are trained to scent an alert to decomposing human remains. There are other dogs that search for people who are alive. They're different dogs. These, okay, Emily, just keep reading. Rochini explained that they would not because no one assumed Lacey was dead. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, um, why is he giving so many police interviews? It's a, it's a good question to ask. Did he have to give all these interviews? No. Is he going to be a suspect either way because he's the spouse? Yes. Yes, they are going to look into him thoroughly. Are the things he said to police helpful to him? No. It goes on to say in the days after Christmas, the Modesto Police Department executed search warrants on the Peterson home and Peterson's warehouse. Police confirmed that there had been no forced entry at the house. None of Lacey's jewelry was missing other than one pair of diamond earrings. Traces of Peterson's blood were found on a comforter in the master bedroom. In sheds in the backyard, police found the cover to Peterson's boat smelling heavily of gasoline footnote six. At trial, evidence was introduced that gasoline makes it extremely difficult for trailing dogs to identify human scent, as well as a blue tarp. The boat cover had chunks of concrete in it. In Peterson's truck, police found additional spots of Peterson's blood. Peterson explained that he had cut his hand on the truck door. Police found small chunks of cement and a claw hammer with cement powder on it in the truck's bed. At the warehouse, police inspected the boat and found a pair of pliers under the middle seat. The pliers had hair clamped in their teeth. Subsequent mitochondrial DNA testing of a hair fragment determined that the hair matched a reference sample from Sharon, which meant that its donor had the same maternal lineage as Sharon. The hair did not match Peterson's. So they did familial DNA and matched it to Lacey's maternal line. I'm going to keep going. During the search of Peterson's home, articles that Lacey's would have touched were collected to give the trailing dogs to give to the trailing dogs to enable them to search for Lacey's scent. These included a slipper and a pair of sunglasses. On December 28th, four days after Lacey disappeared, Trimble, a trailing dog, was presented Lacey's sunglasses at the Berkeley Marina. Trimble alerted to Lacey's scent along a path that led out onto a dock and ended at the water. On December 30th, a woman named Amber Fry contacted the police after a friend advised her that Peterson, who she thought was unmarried with no children and with whom she'd been having a relationship since November, was connected to the disappearance of his pregnant wife. Fry and Peterson had had their first date on November 20th and had immediately become sexually intimate. Their relationship had progressed to the point where Peterson had stayed over at Fry's home, picked up Fry's young daughter from daycare, gone to various parties with Fry alone and with her daughter, picked out a Christmas tree with Fry and discussed their views on having children. Peterson initially told Fry that he had never been married and had no children, but on December 6th, a friend of Fry's discovered otherwise and gave him an ultimatum to tell Fry by December 9th or else she would. 
On December 9th, Peterson explained to Fry that he had in fact been married, but had quote unquote lost his wife and the upcoming holidays would be his first without her. On December 15th, Peterson told Fry that he would be in Europe on business through the rest of the month and much of January. On December 23rd, after Fry asked where she should send him things while he was away, Peterson rented a private mailbox to which Fry could send letters. He called Fry that day, claiming to be in Maine, duck hunting with his father, and again on Christmas Day, supposedly still from Maine. After meeting with police, Fry agreed to cooperate and tape future calls from Peterson. On New Year's Eve, Peterson called Fry from a vigil for Lacey, claiming to be in Paris watching fireworks over the Eiffel Tower. He called Fry again on New Year's Day and in the days after, maintaining the fiction that he was in Europe. On January 3rd, 2003, when police confronted Peterson with a picture of himself and Fry, Peterson denied that it was him in the photo and that he was having an affair. On January 6th, at the instigation of police, Fry dropped hints that a friend had learned the truth and would tell her in a matter of hours, footnote 7. Lacey's disappearance swiftly became the subject of widespread media attention. To maintain the pretense that she did not know the truth about Peterson yet, Fry denied watching the news. In response, Peterson finally admitted to Fry that he was married to a woman named Lacey and had been in Modesto the entire time. The next day when Fry asked if Peterson had told Lacey about her, Peterson said he had, and that Lacey was quote-unquote fine with his having an affair. Later in the month, once news media had made the affair public, Peterson, in an interview aired nationwide, repeated that Lacey was fine with his having an affair and said he had disclosed the affair to the police immediately. On February 19th, at the direction of the police investigators, Fry told Peterson they should stop talking. In January, after obtaining a warrant, police placed a surveillance camera outside the Peterson home and GPS tracking devices on Peterson's vehicles, including a series of cars and trucks Peterson rented for a few days at a time. Surveillance data from those devices and visual surveillance by police showed Peterson driving the approximately 90 miles from his home to the Berkeley Marina at least five times in January, each time using a different vehicle. On January 5th, he drove there in a gray Subaru, spent five or 10 minutes, and left. On January 6th, he returned to the marina in a red Honda and only spent a few minutes. On January 9th, Peterson drove there in a white pickup truck. On January 11th, after determining that their cover had been blown, the Modesto Police Department shut down surveillance at the Peterson home. Nevertheless, from tracking data supplied by the automobile's manufacturers, police were able to determine that Peterson drove to the marina on January 26th in Lacey's Land Rover and on January 27th in a rented Dodge Dakota. During the same period, Peterson began to make various changes to his work and living situations. On January 13th, Peterson gave 30 days notice that he was terminating his warehouse lease, which was not up until October. The same month, he started discussions to sell the Peterson home. On January 29th, Peterson sold Lacey's car, trading it for a Dodge Dakota pickup truck. On January 30th, he stopped home mail delivery and directed that all mail be delivered to the post office box he had set up on December 23rd. Remember, Lacey's body has not been found yet. While all of this is going on, she is still considered a missing person. She is not found till April. We are running up to and just after the new year. The nursery for Connor was converted into storage space. On February 18th, satellite television service to the Peterson home was canceled. The satellite company's records indicated the customer had explained he was moving overseas. 
If this is giving you Donna Adelson vibes, I can understand why. A $500,000 reward was posted by a private foundation for information leading to Lacey's return. For months, no useful leads turned up. Even when potentially promising sightings were reported, Peterson appeared to show little interest. For example, the prosecution presented evidence collected from an authorized wiretap of Peterson's phone that showed he took days to follow up with police about a possible sighting in Washington, though he told others, including his mother, that he had followed up with police immediately. Peterson similarly told a business associate he was waiting near the airport in case he needed to fly up to Washington, though at the time Peterson was not near any airport. In mid-April, a significant storm hit the San Francisco Bay Area. On April 13th, after the storm had passed, a couple walking their dog came upon Connor's badly decomposed body, apparently washed ashore along with other storm debris. The location was just over a mile from the southern tip of Brooks Island. The next morning, Lacey's body was discovered on the shoreline at Point Isabel, south of Connor's body, and just over a mile from Brooks Island. Lacey's body had barnacles and duct tape on it. From residual clumps of fabric, it was possible to determine that she had been wearing light-colored capris. The clothing was consistent with the recollection of Amy, who testified that Lacey was wearing cream-colored pants when she last saw her sister on December 23rd. It was, however, inconsistent with the recollection of Peterson, who told police that Lacey was wearing black pants when he last saw her on December 24th. Days later, DNA testing confirmed the identities of the two bodies. Dr. Brian Peterson, no relation, performed autopsies on both bodies. Lacey's body had several parts missing, and then it goes through the details of that and how it was identified. As mentioned, Lacey had had a prenatal checkup on December 23rd. Based on ultrasounds, Connor was at 32 to 33 weeks gestation. Postmortem measurements of his bone growth allowed the doctor to estimate that Connor's date of death was falling between December 21st and December 24th, with an average of December 23rd. Both Dr. Esther Toter, Lacey's gynecologist who conducted the December 23rd checkup and Dr. Peterson testified that based on his age and health, Connor would have survived had he been born that day. And that goes to the that goes to the murder charge as to the unborn baby. They then go through the hydrologist who talks about the tides and how bodies would have traveled in the tides and how and where the bodies would have been dumped for them to show up back in the bay. On April 12th, the day before Connor's body was found, Peterson bought a car using his mother's name, Jacqueline, as his own, providing a fake driver's license number and paying $3,600 in cash. He had grown a goatee and a mustache and appeared to have dyed his hair. On April 15th, when Sharon called him about the discovery of the as-yet-unidentified bodies of Connor and Lacey, Peterson did not return her call. Believing Peterson might flee, police arrested him on April 18th. When arrested, Peterson had nearly $15,000 in cash, foreign currency, two driver's licenses, his own and his brother's, a family member's credit card, camping gear, considerable extra clothing, and multiple cell phones. The prosecution introduced evidence concerning the Peterson's finances. The Peterson expenses were high in relation to their current income. Tradecore USA had never been profitable posting operating losses of $40,000 and $200,000 in consecutive years. The company was not meeting sales goals and owed its parent company $190,000. Peterson had signed multiple credit card applications in the company's name, containing misrepresentations as to the company's income. In the fall of 2002, Lacey inherited jewelry and, at Peterson's request, had some of the items appraised. 
they were valued at more than $100,000. Computers seized from the Peterson home and the warehouse showed emails sent from an account bearing the username SPLET1, S-L-P-E-T-E-1, discussing the sale of jewelry, and eBay records likewise showed Peterson had posted jewelry items for sale. Lacey also stood to inherit one-third of the proceeds from the sale of her grandfather's house, an interest estimated to be worth around $140,000. Lacey's interest would terminate on her death with no right of survivorship to Peterson, but it was unclear whether Peterson was aware of the limitation. Brent, the trustee of the grandparents' estate, had not told Peterson about that provision. The prosecution also submitted additional background concerning Peterson's phishing. Computers seized from the Peterson home in the warehouse showed that someone had conducted searches of classified advertisements for boats on December 7th, the day after Peterson learned he would no longer be able to conceal his marriage from Fry. That same day, Peterson called Bruce Peterson, no relation, about a boat for sale. Peterson inspected the boat the next day and bought it on December 9th without the anchors that came with the boat. Peterson never registered the boat, nor did he ever mention the purchase to his father, to Gransky, an avid fisherman who had invited Peterson to fish several times, to other members of the Rocha family, or to his friend Gregory Reed, with whom he frequently discussed fishing. Review of the seized computer's browser history also showed someone conducting searches on December 8th for boat ramps on the Pacific Ocean, then examining nautical charts, currents, and maps for the Berkeley Marina and the San Francisco Bay, including the area around Brooks Island. They were also visits to fishing-related websites. On December 24th, the day Peterson said he was fishing, was a gray, damp, and cold day with a bit of wind. Few people were at the Berkeley Marina. When questioned by police, Peterson would not say what he was hoping to cash, but the phishing searches performed on his computer earlier in the month also included searches relating to sturgeon and striped bass. Angelo Kuanang, a published author on fishing in the San Francisco Bay, who was accepted by the court as an expert fisherman, testified that Brooks Island was the wrong place to steek sturgeon, which congregated in a different part of the bay that time of year. Sturgeon also preferred live bait to lures, and Peterson's rod was too weak to catch them. Anchoring was essential to reel in sturgeon. The homemade cement anchor in his boat would have been inadequate. Finally, it was illegal to troll for sturgeon, as Peterson claimed to have done. Peterson's lures and the time of year he was fishing were also wrong for catching striped bass. The prosecution's theory was as follows. Peterson killed Lacey sometime the night of December 23rd or the morning of December 24th. On the morning of December 24th, Peterson let their dog Mackenzie out with his leash on to make it appear something had happened while Lacey was walking him. He wrapped Lacey's body in the tarp in the bed of his truck, covered her with the patio umbrellas, drove to the warehouse, then moved her body into his boat, footnote eight. The prosecution introduced photographs of a district attorney's office employee at approximately the same stage of pregnancy and weight as Lacey at her disappearance, fitting into the bottom of Peterson's boat. He drove to the Berkeley Marina, motored out to an area near Brooks Island, and slipped her body attached to homemade concrete weights like the homemade anchor Peterson had made into the bay, footnote 9. Through an engineer for the company that manufactured the boat, the prosecution introduced stability tests the boat model underwent to obtain certification before it was sold. Peterson then returned to Modesto, dropped off the boat at the warehouse, put the boat cover out back under a leaky gas blower so that any scent would be obscured, washed his clothes, and proceeded with the ruse that Lacey was missing, hoping her body would never be discovered. 
Now let's get into the defense evidence of this case. Thank you to today's sponsor, Lomi. Look, Taylor Swift told us that the trash takes itself out, but so far at my house, we're still walking that out to the curb. And Lomi makes it even easier because all of our food waste goes into the Lomi to turn into dirt for our garden. In fact, it's easy enough that my parents didn't yell at me when we got them one for the holidays, and they are loving it. Well, maybe my dad the most because it is turning their food waste into dirt for my dad's garden to really feed the butterflies in their yard. Lomi can cut your trash in half by reducing your food waste, and it reduces some of the guilt when you need to clean out your fridge and look at those vegetables that you swear you were gonna eat because it's the new year and more veggies for you, but sometimes they just get forgotten in the back. I've been there too. But now they can just be repurposed in a way that you feel good about. So whether you just wanna carry less waste out to the curb every week or you're ready to enhance your garden, Lomi is for you. Head to Lomi.com slash to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to L-O-M-I dot com slash Lawnard and use promo code Lawnard to get $50 off at checkout. Thank you, Lomi, for sponsoring this episode. The defense argued the police had not diligently pursued whether a person or persons other than Peterson were more likely responsible for Lacey's disappearance and murder. And they are continuing to argue that to these recent motions. The defense presented evidence that a burglary had occurred on the Peterson Street the week of her disappearance and argued that police failed to adequately follow up on whether that burglary had any connection to Lacey's disappearance. It also presented evidence that a stranger had gone to several houses on December 23rd asking for money and one neighbor thought casing houses for burglaries and so might have had something to do with her disappearance. Testimony was presented that the same neighbor walking with a police officer on Christmas Day to look for the stranger had seen a pair of sandals lying in the road 150 feet from the Peterson home. The neighbor wondered at the time if they might have any connection to Lacey's disappearance, but the officer just left them there. To support the possibility of a third party's involvement, the defense challenged the prosecution's theory that Connor died on December 23rd or 24th presenting its own expert who testified based on ultrasounds and other evidence that Connor lived until after Christmas. The defense also sought to challenge other aspects of the prosecution's case to rebut the dog-trailing evidence the defense called Ronald Schitz, S-E-I-T-Z, Seats, Emily, brain in the gutter, a second dog handler who had his dog try to find Lacey's scent at the Berkeley Marina on December 28th. The dog TJ was given Lacey's slipper as a scent object, but discovered no scent trail. To rebut the inference that Peterson had a financial incentive to kill Lacey, the defense presented a financial expert who testified that Trade Corp USA and the Petersons were both reasonably financially healthy. To portray the prosecution's theory as physically impossible, the defense also sought to introduce a video of a demonstration with a weighted 150-pound dummy in a boat on the bay in which a defense firm employee trying to dump the dummy out sank the boat. As will be discussed below, the trial court excluded the video. The defense offered explanations for the circumstances of Peterson's behavior in April. His use of his mother's name to purchase a car was at her suggestion to avoid having it impounded. He had large amounts of cash because she gave it to him to reimburse him for money erroneously withdrawn from his bank account rather than hers. Finally, he had his brother's driver's license because the club where he was going to golf that day gave discounts for local residents, such as his brother. Guilt phase verdict, the jury found Peterson guilty of murder in the first degree for the killing of Lacey and murder in the second degree for the killing of Connor. It found true the sole charge special circumstance for multiple murder. 
It then goes briefly through the penalty phase of trial. Prosecution evidence, Peterson had no criminal record nor any history of violent acts. At the penalty phase, the prosecution relied exclusively on circumstances of the crime and victim impact evidence. Four members of Lacey's immediate family, her mother, Sharon, her stepfather, Ron, her brother, Brent, and her sister, Amy, testified. They described who Lacey was as a person, shared photographs, memories, and vignettes from her life, and conveyed the grief and loss they each felt after the deaths of Lacey and her unborn child. Defense evidence. Through friends, family, neighbors, teachers, coworkers, employees, and other witnesses, the defense offered evidence that Peterson had been a kind and positive member of the community. Peterson grew up in a loving family, displayed a patient and gentle disposition, and was a solid student. As part of his high school community service requirement, Peterson worked at a home for the elderly and tutored homeless children. He started his own business and worked a variety of other jobs while in college. According to the defense, Peterson was always calm with Lacey. Indeed, witnesses testified Peterson was calm at all times, at work, on the golf course, and in his dealings with all of those around him. Friends and family testified to the impact the trial had on Peterson's relatives and indicated they believed if sentenced to life in prison, Peterson could make a positive impact on the lives of others. In closing argument, defense counsel described Peterson's life as one worth saving and argued that lingering doubt about Peterson's guilt should also weigh in favor of a life verdict. If there was lingering doubt, however, they should not have convicted him. If this jury, and it is the same jury that considers the guilt phase and the punishment phase, if the jury had doubt, they should not have convicted him in the first place. So when they argue that there is lingering doubt about his guilt, it's, you're arguing it to the jury that just said they don't have doubt that he is, you know, guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The jury returned a death verdict. The court denied a motion for new trial, denied the automatic motion for modification of the verdict, and imposed the sentence of death. Now we are into the legal discussion of this case. Excusable prospective jurors for cause based on questionnaire answers reflecting opposition to the death penalty. Peterson claims errors occurred during every phase of his trial. We begin with his challenge to the manner in which the jury was chosen. During jury selection, multiple prospective jurors were excused based solely on written questionnaire responses indicating that they were personally opposed to the death penalty. Peterson contends that, absent any indication these jurors would be unable to faithfully and impartially apply the law, it was error to remove them from the jury pool. On this initial point, Peterson is correct. Long-standing United States Supreme Court precedent makes clear that prospective jurors may not be disqualified from service in a capital case solely because of their general objections to the death penalty. That is just what happened here. And as this court has repeatedly explained, under high court precedent, even one such error requires an automatic reversal of any ensuing death penalty judgment. Here, there was not just one error, there were many. We are therefore required to reverse the death judgment. Contrary to Peterson's argument, however, we are not also required to reverse the judgment of guilt. The Supreme Court did an excellent job not just breaking down the evidence in the case, but why the death penalty verdict was overturned. And that's only 23 pages of a 103-page decision where they methodically go through all of the arguments in this case. But ultimately, 
the one that they overturned was the death penalty based on the jurors being dismissed based on their questionnaire. Now we need to fast forward in time. This was appealed in 2015 and ruled on in 2020. So five years to get to the overturning of the death penalty verdict. Then Peterson loses his appointed counsel. And now we have the LA Innocence Project taking up this case. And not only is the LA Innocence Project taking up this case as counsel pro bono for Scott Peterson, but they are also strongly telling the prosecutor's office that the prosecutors who should be on this case for this phase should not be the original prosecutors from the trial. But the original prosecutors from the trial absolutely disagree on that point, which is something I have not seen widely covered. And there is an affidavit by Scott Peterson in here, and we are going to go through every line of that affidavit after we go through the broad arguments that the LA Innocence Project is making. And I will stop referring to them by their full title and start referring to them as Peterson and his attorneys, because these are arguments made by Peterson and his attorneys. This was filed with the court on January 17th, 2024. Notice of motion, motion for post-conviction discovery, and memorandum of points and authorities. Peterson has a writ for habeas corpus that is pending before the California Courts of Appeal, filed on April 19th, 2023, asserting violations of state and federal constitutional rights and state statutory rights, including Brady claims and a claim of actual innocence that is supported by newly discovered evidence. So he is not just arguing that there were procedural errors in his trial like the Brady claims, the claims that prosecutors did not turn over all evidence that was exculpatory towards him, but a claim of actual innocence, which is different, saying you have apt. It's not just that there's technicalities on this trial and I should go to trial again. It is, I am actually innocent. You have the wrong person. This has to be undone. And that is supported by newly discovered evidence. It goes on to say, Mr. Peterson incorporates by reference each of these facts alleged in the petition and requests that this court take judicial notice of all pleadings and filings in People versus. Peterson, San Mateo County Superior Court, and it gives all the case information. Mr. Peterson is currently in the custody of the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, serving a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. This motion is made pursuant to California Penal Code Section 1054.9 and is based upon the facts set forth. And then it goes through all of that information that is essentially pro forma background information. Well, it goes through all of the how we got here motion stuff. Let's get into the statement of facts. Background. Mr. Peterson respectfully requests that the court refer to the statement of facts set forth in his motion for DNA testing pursuant to Penal Code Section 1405 filed concurrently herewith. Procedural history. We know the background. We just went through the state Supreme Court's background. This is the procedural history. What has happened in the law to get us here? Peterson was charged in Stanislaus Superior Court with the murders of his wife, Lacey, and their unborn child, Connor, in violation of Penal Code Section 187, which is the murder section in California. The information added a multiple murder special circumstance in violation of Section 190.2, Subdivision A3. There are lots of special circs in California. Multiple murders is just one of them. Mr. Peterson has maintained his innocence since his arrest in 2003. Mr. Peterson pleaded not guilty and was tried by jury. On November 12th, 2004, a jury found Peterson guilty of the murders. He was sentenced to death on March 16th. On August 24th, 2020, the California Supreme Court affirmed the conviction but vacated the death sentence 
Initially, the district attorney's office indicated they would retry the penalty phase and seek a second death sentence for Mr. Peterson. But after Mr. Peterson made an informal request for additional discovery, the prosecution announced it would not go forward with a second penalty phase trial and instead stipulate to a lesser sentence. On December 8th, 2021, Peterson was resentenced to a term of life without the possibility of parole. In 2015, Peterson filed a petition for writ of habeas corpus with the California Supreme Court raising multiple claims of error. On October 14th, 2020, the Supreme Court issued an order to show cause as to alleged claims of juror misconduct. This court held an evidentiary hearing concerning juror misconduct and denied Peterson's petition on December 20th, 2022. When I say that there are parallels between other cases that we are covering, I I think we are going to continue to see these types of hearings in high-profile cases, which is going to thus make it harder to find juries in high-profile cases. But I digress. Let's continue. On April 19th, 2023, Peterson filed a pro se, representing himself, petition for a writ of habeas corpus in the first appellate district of the Court of Appeal raising the claim of juror misconduct as well as a claim of innocence supported by new evidence. The Court of Appeal ordered the Attorney General to file an informal response, which was filed on July 28, 2023. On December 1, 2023, the Court of Appeal suspended informal briefing in the habeas proceeding at his request to allow counsel to conduct further investigation into his claim of innocence, including the filing of this motion and the motion for DNA testing filed concurrently. They then go through the history of Scott Peterson seeking additional discovery after the close of the trial and after his conviction. They argue that Peterson is entitled to the discovery requested herein, and they go through the legal standards from the Code Section 1054.9, quoting, In a case involving a conviction of a serious felony or a violent felony resulting in a sentence of 15 years or more, upon the prosecution of post-conviction writ of habeas corpus or a motion to vacate a judgment, or in preparation to file that writ or motion, and on a showing that good faith efforts to obtain discovery materials from trial counsel were made and were unsuccessful, the court shall, except as provided in subdivisions B or D, order that the defendant be provided reasonable access to any of the materials described in subdivision C. And then it goes on to describe anything the defendant should have been given at trial, he can still ask for. Then they line out the different categories of discovery Scott Peterson is seeking. And those categories are all of the burglary investigation reports, the burglary that happened across the street around the same time that Lacey Peterson went missing. Lieutenant Xavier Aponte reports and recordings regarding that burglary, Lacey's missing watch and pawn shop investigation, an incendiary van fire in the airport district on the morning of December 25th, which you're going to hear a lot more about. Eyewitnesses who report seeing Lacey on or after December 24th, eyewitnesses who report seeing the dog alone and unattended, the missing Bates pages, all the pages in a homicide prosecution and other types of prosecutions, but particularly in a homicide, have Bates stamps. They are not date stamps, B-A-T-E-S, Bates stamps, which make sure that every page a prosecutor has, the defense also has. So they stamp them in order. Um, and there are pages that the defense is saying we absolutely do not have. The reports, videos, and data related to the Bay searches, 
Computer forensic evidence related to the time Peterson arrived at his office, scent dog reports, including water cadaver dogs employed in the Bay Area searches, the policies governing disclosure of conflicts of interest. There are allegations here uh, made in a footnote that the district attorney that was assigned to the case was involved in a relationship with one of the law enforcement officers on the case and that that relationship should have been disclosed because it is a conflict of interest. New reports and leads, audio and video recordings of the interviews with Scott Peterson, a something called a Tracy tip, uh, current evidence, property chain of custody logs for all evidence items. So those are the broad categories, and they go on for dozens of pages, lining out every item of discovery that they are seeking. And while we have heard a lot, if you followed this case, about the burglary from across the street and the fact that the the people who were caught in that burglary were investigated and asked if they had anything to do with this, and they were like, no, not at all. The defense has long argued that the police did not investigate that burglary across the street well enough to determine if Lacey might have interrupted that burglary and that she might have been collateral to that burglary. But there is another item of this, and this is what they are seeking DNA testing, and that is the van fire from December 25th, 2002. They're asking for a complete copy of Modesto Police Department in the case, and they give the case number, and the fire department and the fire department's case number concerning the investigation of an incendiary fire of an orange van containing a mattress with apparent bloodstains located in the alley between 612 Thrasher and 607 Empire, footnote 12, less than one mile from the Petersons' home in the early morning of December 25th, 2002, the day after Lacey Peterson was reported missing. These items requested include but are not limited to the following, but let's get to that footnote. Footnote C, Exhibit 8, the declaration of Mike Goodgell, attesting to the fact that 607 Empire was the address of Stephen Todd's sister-in-law, the daughter of Cliff Cohn, whose name Todd provided as his unverified alibi for December 24, 2002, and those are names connected to the burglary. Digital copies of all 911 calls reporting the fire in the alley, a complete color copy of the files and the crime lab files, DNA reports, bench notes, all of it. So they're looking for all of the reports, and they are also asking to be allowed to do additional DNA on the cuttings that were taken from the mattresses and other places. Particularly, some of the items that are interesting to me are the following, which are police and fire reports, notes, audio, basically everything, of sightings of a van similar in the Loma, in the La Loma neighborhood prior to it being reported on fire. There is an interview with the police department saying, an individual saying he saw a bright orange blazer type vehicle in East La Loma Park that resembled the color of a Caltrans van with suspicious looking men standing nearby. He also saw a dog he recognized as the Peterson's dog Mackenzie in the park on the morning of December 24th. The report called in by an individual named Patty, who informed the police on December 25th at 6.30 a.m., a rust-colored van stalled out on her street in front of her home on Highland Drive within a 1,000 feet of the Petersons' home, and a woman knocked on her door asking for gas, which her husband provided. And reports, all reports relating to sightings of an orange blazer, as indicated by information called in by other witnesses. And then they list a long list of witnesses who either called in or talked about the van and any action taken regarding the van. Can we talk about your butt for a minute? 
now that I have all of your attention and have mortified my mother, we're going to talk about today's sponsor, Tushy. Tushy makes bidets that are so easy to install, you won't even fight with your partner about connecting it to your toilet. And with Tushy, you use 75% less toilet paper on average. And for those of us that are on septic, this is a huge bonus. But if you're worried about it, let me assuage some of your concerns. The Tushy Bidet stays clean and hygienic with its patented self-cleaning smart spray. The nozzle self-cleans before and after each use automatically. The buildup resistant design helps you minimize grime buildup and even has antimicrobial knobs. The bidet stays clean just like your booty. Tushy comes with a 30-day hassle-free return and a 12-month warranty so you can try it out and make sure it's right for you. So join over 3 million real pooping humans who have made the switch. Get that fresh out of the shower feeling at hellotushy.com. For a limited time, our listeners get 10% off at checkout when you use code LAWNERD. That's 10% off your order at H-E-L-L-O-T-U-S-H-Y.com with promo code LAWNERD. It's time to back that ass up with confidence. Let's get back into today's show. In concluding this, they say, Peterson respectfully requests the court grant this motion and order the prosecution to conduct a thorough and sweeping search of its files and provide Mr. Peterson through his counsel with discovery as requested herein without delay. We then get into some of the communications back and forth between the defense and the prosecution, which is always interesting to me. This is a very thorough motion asking for a tremendous amount of discovery. But we also find out how the Innocence Project got involved from a declaration of Paula Mitchell, who is the director of the Los Angeles Innocence Project, stating that it is a nonprofit law firm associated with the California Forensic Science Institute at Cal State LA's School of Criminal Justice and Criminalistics, that LAIP represents individuals with claims of actual innocence and is a member of the Innocence Network, a coalition of organizations dedicated to providing pro bono legal and investigative services to individuals seeking to prove claims of innocence for crimes for which they have been convicted, working to redress the causes of wrongful convictions and supporting the exonerated after they are free. In March 2023, I was contacted by Scott Peterson's prior counsel at Habeas Corpus Resource Center and asked if LAIP would be in a position to investigate potentially exculpatory DNA evidence in Peterson's case. Over the following months, I instructed, assisted, and supervised LAIP staff attorneys in assembling the voluminous discovery over 40,000 pages and the trial and appellate record in Peterson's case in an effort to recreate the police investigation file and related crime lab reports and trial counsel files. The LAIP staff attorneys and I contacted Mr. Peterson's prior counsel and obtained from them Peterson's case materials that were in their custody, possession, and control. On April 19th, 2023, Peterson filed a pro se petition for a writ of habeas corpus in the California Court of Appeal, asserting violations of the state and federal constitutional rights and state statutory rights, including Brady claims and claims of actual innocence. In the course of the LAIP's review of some of the preliminary investigation, it became apparent to me that numerous items referred to throughout the police reports in Mr. Peterson's case were not included in the discovery that was provided to the defense at the time of trial and that a motion for post-conviction discovery pursuant to Penal Code 1054.9 would be needed. On November 13th, 2023, the Court of Appeal granted Peterson's request that I be substituted in to represent him in the pending habeas proceedings 
And on November 14th, 2023, I filed a request in the Court of Appeal asking that informal briefing in the pending habeas proceeding be suspended to allow counsel sufficient time to conduct further investigation. On November 14th, I sent a letter to the District Attorney's Office of Stanislaus. On November 14th, I sent a letter to the District Attorney of Stanislaus County, Jeff Laguerro, seeking his office's position on our request for specific items of post-conviction discovery. DA Laguerro responded via email that same evening, stating that the original trial prosecutors on Peterson's case were still assigned to the Peterson case and would be the points of contact. On November 15th, I replied to the DA, urging him to reconsider his decision to assign the original trial prosecutors to Peterson's case, as it is no longer considered best practices to ask trial prosecutors to investigate and review their own convictions in cases where a claim of innocence is asserted, and particularly where there are allegations of prosecutorial misconduct. The email exchanges of November 14th and 15th are attached here too. On December 1st, 2023, the Court of Appeals granted Peterson's request to suspend informal briefing. Let's take a look briefly at those interactions between the prosecution and the defense. The first letter is the defense sending an extensive list of what they are looking for by way of discovery, all of which is incorporated into their motion, but it is a thorough and extensive letter. The elected DA responds and says the point of contact are the original prosecutors. The Innocence Project emails back and says, I urge you to change prosecutors. It is now universally accepted best practices for the original trial prosecutors in a case not to be tasked with or even involved in investigating and searching for exculpatory evidence and or reviewing the integrity of a conviction. And then they go on and cite various law review articles regarding that position and then sign off with, I hope that in light of this well-established principle, you will reconsider your decision to assign this matter to the original trial prosecutors to investigate and respond to our request so we can ensure that justice is done in this complicated and important case. The trial prosecutor responds saying, District Attorney Jeff Laguerro has received your request regarding the informal discovery. He asked me to respond to you directly. In reference to your statement about potential concerns in this office's assignment of the original prosecutors, we completely disagree that your cited material provides any basis for removal. District Attorney Laguerro is completely confident in having the original prosecution team respond to any and all requests in any subsequent post-convictions matter. You may not be aware, but it was our team that brought newly discovered information to the attention of inmate Peterson's lawyers and the court during his last habeas matter. Our transparency during the alleged juror misconduct issue is part of the record, and the district attorney has no intention of removing our team and our valuable experience from any post-conviction project related to this matter. Your 64-page request lists a few items which were purportedly not included in the initial discovery to defendant Peterson's original trial counsel and several other items. However, you have peppered this request with accusations for which, as you state in the request, you have chosen to withhold the basis. This lack of full and complete disclosure calls into question the suggested intent of a transparent reciprocal discovery process, especially given your implied claim of innocence. The fact that you have chosen to withhold items you claim to possess that support some of your assertions is troubling. However, it is our office's intention to respond to your request in due course 
given the grant by the first district court of appeal for a six-month extension for your reply brief to the attorney general's informal response. However, as you recognize having dealt with these matters for many years, there is no informal discovery process provided under penal code section 1054.9. As an aside, our also FYI, as an aside, our office was previously scheduled to meet with defendant Peterson's prior appointed habeas counsel to discuss their current claims in August of 2023, but that meeting was canceled by defendant Peterson's prior appointed counsel on habeas corpus. If you would like to reschedule a meeting, our team will be pleased to meet and confer with you in the new year. This office continues to strive to ensure justice for the victims of crime, as well as justice for those accused, charged, prosecuted, and convicted. Thank you, Bridget, the special prosecutor assigned to this case. Then we get to Scott Peterson's declaration. I, Scott Peterson, hereby declare under penalty of perjury, the following is true and accurate to the best of my knowledge. I am 51 years old and currently incarcerated by the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitations at Mule Creek State Prison in Ione, California, serving a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. In 2004, I was wrongly convicted of murdering my wife, Lacey Peterson, and our unborn son, Connor. The identity of the perpetrator or perpetrators of this crime for which I was wrongly convicted has always been a contested issue in this case. I have steadfastly maintained my innocence from the moment my wife went missing on December 24th, 2002, throughout my trial, appeal, and post-conviction proceedings, and to this day. He says, I had absolutely nothing to do with the disappearance and deaths of my wife and son. I am not a violent person. I have never had a physical fight nor violent incident with anyone in my life. I am a law-abiding citizen with no criminal record prior to my arrest in this case. I have never had any incident or rule violation report since my wrongful incarceration began in 2003. I did not harm or kill my family. At my request and on my behalf, investigations into who is responsible for the deaths of my wife and son have been ongoing over the last 21 years and continue to this day. In the course of these investigations, I have discovered that critical exculpatory evidence was ignored, overlooked, or never investigated at all, and in other instances was suppressed at the time of my trial. Newly discovered evidence that was not presented to the jury at my trial supports my claim of innocence. As part of my ongoing effort to prove my innocence, I submit this declaration setting forth the evidence that supports my claim of innocence in support of my motion for DNA testing on certain items of physical evidence pursuant to Penal Code Section 1405, and in support of my motion for post-conviction discovery pursuant to Penal Code 1054.9. And then it goes through the procedural background of the case through his words, um, which was lined out in the motion. Emily, you said you were going to go line by line. Yes, yes, but this is all put into the motion and we've already gone through it, so it would be redundant. Emily, you repeat yourself all the time. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. I know. He states, during the search to find Lacey, the police continually ignored evidence showing my innocence, including eyewitness reports that Lacey was alive and walking our dog the day she disappeared. In addition, 11 search warrants were served on me, beginning with the first one executed on December 26, 2002, on our home, vehicles, computers, financial records, phone records, boat, my office, and warehouse, from which hundreds of items of purported quote-unquote evidence were collected, but no physical or direct evidence implicating me in the killing of my family was ever found. Yep, this was a circumstantial case. Those happen. He goes on to say, I now know I was subject to constant and relentless 24-hour surveillance by law enforcement while Lacey was missing, including thousands of wiretapped and recorded phone conversations. The Supreme Court listed a lot of that out, following the vehicles, tapping the vehicles, 
He goes on to say GPS tracking devices were surreptitiously mounted on my vehicles so police could have me under constant surveillance. I mean, they would have needed a warrant to do it. So they would have had a warrant to do it. A pole camera was mounted outside our home on January 3rd to monitor when I came and went. And police officers waited in unmarked vehicles parked around the corner from our home to follow my every move, even as I left to go distribute quote unquote missing person flyers or a... Why did he put that in quotes? That strikes me as odd. Or assist at the volunteer center with the search for Lacey or to go look into tips from people who were calling in to report possible sightings of Lacey. Once again, none of the evidence obtained through the extensive surveillance of my movements implicated me in my family's disappearance or deaths. I don't know. People might read it differently that you went back to the marina so many times. I'm just saying. Like months before she was found there. I mean, you know. He goes on to say he was interviewed by police for more than 12 hours in what felt like a custodial setting. Modesto, look, if you don't have to talk to the police, don't talk to the police. You have the right to shut the fuck up. Modesto Police Department Detective Braschini reportedly told me he was merely trying to eliminate me as a suspect. I'm sure that's what he was trying to do. But I was clearly the only suspect the police were seriously looking into. I provided the information in this declaration to the police when they were investigating Lacey's disappearance in December 2002 and January 2003. I provided detailed answers to all of the questions. I mean, they see it differently. The police asked me about my activities and whereabouts on the day Lacey was abducted during those interviews. Of all 12 hours of interviews I had with police, only one hour was actually recorded and preserved on tape. That troubles me too. I don't like that either. The unrecorded interviews were quote-unquote summarized in written police reports that I have reviewed. These reports contain omissions, misstatements, and outright falsehoods. I recall providing much more information to the police, including during my many phone calls I made conveying tips and leads, information that is not included in any written report. After Lacey and Connor's remains were found on April 13th and 14th, I was arrested and charged with killing my family. I pled not guilty to the charges. My preliminary hearing took place in Stanislaus County, but the venue of my trial was changed to San Mateo County due to the overwhelming and unprecedented nature of the media frenzy surrounding Lacey's disappearance. My trial took place over six months in 2004, during which the prosecution called over 150 witnesses in the guilt phase of my trial, but presented no physical, forensic, or direct evidence linking me to the deaths of my wife and son. Uh, I disagree a little bit. However, um, cases can be proven on circumstances. So, like, that isn't, that truly isn't controlling. He goes on to say, I was found guilty by a jury on November 12th, 2004, and sentenced to death on March 16th, 2005. I was sent to serve my sentence on death row in San Quentin, where I spent the next 15 years waiting for my direct appeal to be filed and decided by the California Supreme Court. On August 24th, 2020, the California Supreme Court overturned my death sentence because the trial improperly dismissed prospective jurors who expressed opinions as to the death penalty, but nevertheless attested in their questionnaire response that they would have no difficulty imposing a death sentence if that is what the law required. On May 16th, 2021, while preparing for a second penalty phase trial, I asked my attorney to request additional discovery from the prosecution that had not yet been turned over to my defense team and me, including police investigation reports from 2002 and 2003, any new leads or tips in the possession of the prosecution team, among other items. On May 28, 2001, 12 days after the request for discovery was sent, I was informed that the prosecution decided not to pursue a retrial of the penalty phase and instead defaulted to sentencing me to life without the possibility of parole. He's connecting those two things. 
We won't know yet how connected those two things are. We're going to have to wait and see. The discovery I requested in 2021 has never been produced by the prosecution to my knowledge. I am again seeking that discovery in the motion I am filing with the court now, along with other items that have never been provided by the prosecution. When the Stanislaus County District Attorney's Office decided not to seek the death penalty against me a second time, I was resentenced to serve life without the possibility of parole at a hearing held on December 8th, 2021. On November 24th, 2015, before my appeal was decided, I filed a petition for writ of habeas in the Supreme Court of California, raising statutory, state, and federal constitutional claims of error, including a claim of juror misconduct and several claims that the prosecution presented false and unreliable expert testimony related to one, scent dog evidence, two, fetal biometry, three, movements of bodies in water in violation of my state and federal rights and due process and of Penal Code Section 1473. On October 14th, 2020, the California Supreme Court issued an order to show cause as to claim one as to why relief should not be granted on the ground that juror number seven committed prejudicial misconduct by not disclosing her prior involvement with other legal proceedings, including that she sought a restraining order while she was pregnant in 2000 out of fear that physical harm would come to her unborn child. I read in the briefing that juror number seven was separately a victim of domestic violence in 2001 while she was pregnant with another child. The California Supreme Court summarily denied the other claims raised in my petition without a reasoned opinion. I'm sure the Supreme Court would love to hear that. I attended the evidentiary hearing that was held in San Mateo County Superior Court in August 2022 concerning juror number seven's alleged prejudicial misconduct. The Superior Court acknowledged that juror number seven was not truthful in her juror questionnaire, but still denied the claim because the judge found that her misconduct was not motivated by any bias against me. If that sounds to you like the Maxwell case, it is very similar to the Maxwell case where a juror in the Maxwell case, and there's another Emily Show episode on this, and this one's gotten way long, left things out that were very similar in nature to the case that was being heard, but and then talked about them on a BBC interview, which is how they came to light. The court did an evidentiary hearing, questioned the juror, and decided that the omissions on the questionnaire were not prejudicial to the defendant. And that's what we're going to be hearing this week in the Murdoch case as well, about whether or not the clerk of court spoke to jurors and what happens from there. That all is going to happen after I record this, but a lot of it's going to happen before it's released. So hopefully you're tuning in over on YouTube and we all know what happens by now. On April 19th, 2023, I filed a pro se petition for writ of habeas corpus in the California Court of Appeals, seeking review of the Superior Court's denial of my claim that juror number seven committed prejudicial misconduct, which is currently pending. In my petition, I also raised claims that the prosecution presented false evidence against me, and I submitted new evidence of a confession made by one of the individuals involved in the burglary of our neighbor's home who admitted to killing my family. In July 2023, I contacted the Los Angeles Innocence Project. They say your lawyer did, but okay and asked them to investigate the evidence in my case and determine whether a post-conviction discovery motion and motion for DNA testing should be filed so that further investigation can be conducted into who's responsible for killing my family. I believe this additional information will assist in determining what happened to my family and prove I am innocent and had nothing to do with these horrible crimes committed against my wife and son. I have reviewed this declaration in its entirety and it is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was done on November 29th, 
2023. Scott Peterson says he submitted new evidence of a confession made by one of the individuals involved in the burglary. This has long been the defense's argument that the burglary across the street and those who committed that burglary are those who are responsible for the death of Lacey and Connor Peterson. And depending on the DNA evidence, because when that burned out van was recovered and tested, there were presumptive tests for blood in a mat- on a mattress in the back of the van. Depending on what that DNA evidence shows, it could be a very, a very telling piece of new evidence that at a minimum should have been presented at trial had it been done. So what happens now? Will they get a hearing on this? Will they get the DNA testing? And is this all going to be enough for Scott Peterson to get a new trial? There is a lot of circumstantial evidence against him. However, if there is DNA belonging to Lacey Peterson in a van that was burned out and police didn't follow up on those leads, and there is a confession, an actual confession of someone who says, no, I was involved or no, I did this, and evidence to support that confession, it's going to be a very interesting thing. If you appreciate taking a look back at a case that is now deep, deep in the mud on appeals, let me know in the comments over on YouTube or your reviews of the Emily Show podcast on your favorite podcasting platform, because I have a feeling we're going to need to follow this one and add it to the docket for more breakdowns as this goes forward and whether or not new evidence will be tested and presented in the Scott Peterson case. And with that, thank you for being here. Thank you for being a lawnard. May your weather be getting warm. Should I say may your toilet paper be plentiful? Because maybe you don't need as much anymore. Maybe you don't. But may your Wi-Fi be flawless. May your family be well, and may the odds be ever in your favor. Lawnard, I'll talk to you in the next one. You can stay up to date with everything I'm covering on our free iOS and Android app at lawnardapp.com or search your app store for Lawnard. And you can also follow me on social media at the Emily D. Baker. Remember, I stream on YouTube on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I recap all of that for you in quick bits on Monday. And of course, The Emily Show drops on Wednesdays. Thanks for being a Lawnard.